Ladies and gentlemen, welcome and welcome back to the Grad School Sucks podcast. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I've got something special planned for you. So I have recently been reflecting and I've had a couple thoughts about things I would have done differently if I were to go back to grad school. And there are two things that stand out. And so for today's episode, I'm going to spend a brief period of time talking about those two things and what I think grad students today could do differently to not fall into the same traps that I did. And then I'll also have a episode from a couple weeks ago that I'm going to rebroadcast. It's an episode with uh, Dr. Savannah Young. She is an industry researcher now, previously social scientist in academia, and I think her career path is a great one that grad students can look to and emulate, um, especially if you're in grad school and you're thinking, you know, I don't want to stay here forever. I want to go to industry. Savannah is a great example to look to. So we'll be doing a rebroadcast of that episode right after I go through uh, just a couple minutes of chatting about what I would do differently if I were to go back to grad school. All right, so here we go. If I were to go back to grad school, here are two things I would have done differently. The first thing that I uh, regret doing is that I chose an academic mentor based on intuition or what I call uh, personal fit alone. And I make a lot of my decisions based on intuition. I think that's why I was a natural therapist when I got in the therapy room. Um, and largely when I was choosing the grad program I was going to go to and I was interviewing with professors, I followed my intuition. And uh, so one professor in, partic in particular, um, I found uh, warm and emotionally intelligent and this person cared about social causes and that's really where I was um, at the time as a, as a budding young therapist. And uh, I felt really drawn to this person, and I did make the decision to go to that school that they were at and to study with them initially. And um, once I got there, I began to see maybe other things about them and about working with them that weren't as, uh, as groovy as I thought things would be. The first one was they kind of seemed distracted when I would go in their office. They, they would be on Facebook um, not really doing a lot of research. Uh, the second one was that in the different settings I saw this person in, uh, teaching wise and, uh, clinical supervision wise, they didn't always seem, um, what's the right word to describe it? This person didn't seem really attentive to the moment, which for therapists and, uh, you know, clinicians in training. That's something that's super interesting. I did initiate some research projects with this person, um, but none of them really became anything substantial. And basically what I found in talking with some of this person's former students was that uh, they'd experienced a loss in productivity. Yeah, they'd done some great work before, um, but for a variety of reasons, uh, both personal and professional, uh, they had they'd reached a little bit of a rough spot. And I think this this was also part of the bigger picture of um, what the program 
was going through at the time. But I think also the kinds of clinical programs that I come from, MFT programs, I think can often struggle because they're expensive to run. They require a fair amount of faculty and they can only take so many students and the on-campus clinic costs a lot. And so there can often be extra pressure put on MFT faculty or clinical faculty in general uh, because of this. Um, and frankly, being clinically active takes away time to earn grant money. And so I think that's there's another reason that clinical faculty and research institutions uh, often have pressure put on them. So, but nonetheless, uh, my intuition in this situation, I, in retrospect, I feel like it was hijacked. Um, and I think now that I'm older, I can see uh, what I should have been looking for at the time and what I should have been doing in order to realize that uh, this faculty person, while they were really engaging and uh, great to talk with and, and I think earnestly cared about helping people, it may have not been the right decision for my career to work with them. Ultimately, I did not work with them um, in the long run, but I did uh, make decisions and put time and energy uh, into that. So what should I have done differently? I think one thing to think about when you're making decisions about choosing a major professor is about checking your intuition at the door. And when I say that, I mean, you're going to be drawn to certain people and intuition is super important. And it's still something that I rely on a lot. But intuition can be led astray when you are not providing it with enough raw technical information uh, in order to allow your decision or your intuition rather to lean one way or another. And then if you're provided with maybe misleading information or manipulative information, that can also really hijack your intuition. And um, that's partially what I felt what happened to me. So whenever I heard uh, from this person about how, you know, we could help people, we could do good together. That was kind of the trigger that uh, shut off me looking for other red flags, perhaps. So. so one of the ways you can get around this is to talk with former grad students, former collaborators of a professor that you're interviewing with. Uh, and when I say former, I don't mean that they have they worked with them for a long time, they graduated, they're now in a research position, and they're continuing to collaborate with this professor. Because academia, academia is such a small world, and the grapevine is very active in academia. And if you badmouth a professor that your career is still tied to, it can really come back to negatively affect you. So I think that's something that you should think about whenever you're interviewing grad students that are working with a professor that you're interested in, or former grad students who've gone on and are still in academia doing research, and they still have active work with that person. They're probably not going to tell the full truth. Uh, they'll probably give you valuable information. But I think you should seek to balance it with other information. And so the kinds of people that I think you should try to seek out are people who have been their students and have gone on to have their own great careers, but no longer collaborate with this person on projects. 
they uh, I think they're in a good position to no longer have skin in the game in order to uh, you know be able to speak candidly about this person I think another thing that you can do is talk with previous students who may still be students but have transferred away from this person um, I think there there is a little um, just a warning when you do that though obviously there are students who just don't necessarily want to do the work or they get into grad school and they're in over their head and they're looking for someone to blame and so that information is really not going to be helpful and there's just genuine uh, poor person personality fits where there's really not like a fault in between the student or the professor it's just it was just never a really good fit to begin with so but again, if you can find someone who has had experience working with this person and they're no longer uh, underneath their umbrella, so to speak, and their career won't be threatened by speaking candidly about working with them, I think that's where you'll get the most valuable information. And so one way to do that is to, when you meet with the professor, they'll ask for contacts that you can talk to. They will give you people that they know like them, most likely, and then you, when you talk with each of those contacts, ask those contacts for other people to talk to. And so those contacts will be a little bit more willing to give you information on um, people who uh, may no longer work actively with this person. So, all right, moving on. The second thing that I shouldn't have done in grad school and that uh, I think you should seek to avoid doing so the second thing that uh, I would do differently if I went back to grad school uh, is the amount of time and energy I spent volunteering. So I volunteered a lot in grad school and uh, when I think about that time I was in a headspace where I felt like it was the right thing to do and um, later when I got you know further into my career and I was thinking more seriously about my CV and I was applying to jobs <clears throat> I felt like volunteering uh, may was meaningful in the moment, but really did not have a lot of long-term consequences for my career. So I think volunteering is good, and I think it's necessary. And my program, and I think a lot of other programs, require you to have some kind of volunteer position. Uh, however, I think it's good to restrict how much time and energy you put into volunteering. Uh, because you, it can really become a black hole. And here are some of the ways that I uh, spent my time volunteering and giving away time and energy. I was the president of both my master's and doctoral department grad student associations. I had a volunteer position at pretty much every conference that I went to. Uh, I reviewed a lot for basically any journals that would accept grad student reviewers. This wasn't technically volunteer work, but I was when I was training to be a therapist, both at the both at the master's and doctoral level, I was practicing marriage and family therapy for free. At the master's level, that's pretty typical. At the doctoral level, that's not that typical. And the program that I come from is one of the few programs, well really it's the only program I'm aware of that has an on-campus clinic where doctoral students are expected to do therapy for free. So uh, 
I also put a lot of volunteer time into my mentor's lab and as well as other projects. And some of them did become publications and did have some kind of impact, but that's probably the minority. You know, I think the majority of them were just time spent on maybe this will be cool or maybe this will lead to something and, and really it didn't. So I think at some point I just volunteered myself into exhaustion and I could have certainly done things differently. And so I think if you're an early stage grad student and you're in the position to where you need to put in some time to volunteer, I think you should be strategic about what you do. Um, and there's a couple ways that you can do that. Um, there's one way that, and this is not just for volunteering, but this is for all of your goals in general. You can do an activity that basically you write down your top goals for this stage in your life. Let's say grad student. Well, let's just walk through it. So the activity is to write down your top 20 goals right now, right? So take a moment, you can pause the episode, write down 20 goals that you have, 20 things that you want to accomplish professionally at this stage in your life as a grad student. Let's say, you know, by the end of grad school. So you write down those top 20. The second step is to reorder those goals from, you know, you probably wrote them down in order of when they popped into your head. Now, rewrite them into order of importance. So goal number one is the most important goal you have. Goal number 20 is the least important of these top 20 goals that you have. And then once you've done that, <coughs> step three of this activity is to uh, circle the top five goals that you have and cross out the bottom 15. And I, this is not an activity I made up. This is something that I heard from a successful investor uh, who was asked by a young person on how to accomplish their goals. And the reason that you reorder your top five and put them in one uh, row that you circle and you take the bottom 15 and you cross them out is that you can't accomplish everything you want to. It's just, it's going to be impossible. And the pursuit of the less important goals will destroy the probability that you'll actually achieve your most important goals. Anyway, if, if you're interested in thinking about this further or you actually want a step-by-step -step guide and downloadable worksheet for this activity, I'll make sure and link to it in the episode description of this uh, podcast episode. So, But to zoom in specifically on volunteering, you probably have to volunteer for one thing. And the way to do that is to choose one thing that is aligned with your research area, your future professional identity, um, or something that you just enjoy so much that it doesn't feel like work. And you make sure it's not super time intensive, and then you do it and you move on. And you learn to say no to the ocean of other things that will, uh, that really can just drown, drown out all of your time and energy and your enthusiasm. And I heard something once from, I think it was from another therapist, I don't remember exactly, but it went something along the lines of, don't let the joy of helping others keep you from helping yourself. 
It's important to help others, but when you're only helping others, you can't help yourself. You can only be on one side of the river at once. And there's a reason that when you're flying in a plane, that if the oxygen masks fall down, you are supposed to put yours on first before you assist somebody else. You have to give your time out of the abundance of things are going well for you in your career. Otherwise, your career is going to crash and you won't be able to give. You won't be able to help others. So that pretty much wraps up this part of the discussion. So again, the two things that I want to talk about were choosing a major professor and avoiding the trap that is over-volunteering for everything. So I have some blog posts on these topics that you can read. And like I said, a downloadable worksheet, I'll make sure and link to them in the episode description of today's podcast episode. And the last thing that I want to say before we get to the interview is that this podcast is brought to you by me. Obviously, I don't have any advertisers or anything. Um, but one thing that I'm doing right now is that I am launching a sticker giveaway. Why stickers, you may say? Well, I've had this Instagram account for, I think, three or four years. I've been making a lot of memes. I think we're approaching 2,000 posts somewhere around there. So I love making memes. I love humor. I love uh, I love the feeling of laughter, but I also love getting to make other people laugh, especially in moments of stress. And I feel like grad school is a time of great stress. And humor is just like a, a dose of endorphin that allows you to keep on going. So I'm hosting a giveaway right now starting uh, today I'm recording this. It's Wednesday, December 14th. This is going to come out tomorrow, Thursday, December 15th. The giveaway will run for 30 days. So anytime in the next few weeks, you can join the giveaway. In order to do it, well, I'll link to it in the description of this podcast episode. But uh, the steps to join the giveaway are simply to follow my account on Instagram, like the giveaway post, tag a friend in the giveaway post and share the giveaway post. And then the last thing is to fill out a brief survey that I have linked to in my Instagram bio. I'll put all of this in the uh, description of this podcast episode. Like I said, I will have 14 winners who will win 14 stickers. And that is celebrating hitting 14 K followers on Instagram. And then I also have an extended survey. It's just like five extra questions that folks can fill out if they want to uh, get a guaranteed three stickers in the mail. So uh, you can win some guaranteed stickers. You can enter to win a bunch of extra stickers. And then in the spring, I'll probably have more stickers available moving forward. So that is uh, the sponsor for this podcast episode, I guess you would say. Anyway, uh, again, we are going to move on to today's interview. All right, so for today's episode, I did have a brand new interview prepared to share with you, but something came up and uh, there was a reason we needed to push back the release date of that interview a couple weeks and uh, I'm happy to oblige, something like that. And But the issue was that I 
didn't have enough time to prep another interview for today. So what I'm going to be doing is <clears throat> I'm going to roll back and play a past interview with Dr. Savannah Young. Dr. Savannah Young, she is a consumer researcher. Right now, she ha holds the title of Staff Qualitative Market Researcher. She got her feet wet in research in academia with me. She was in my cohort. Um, I've known her for about a decade now. She did. She's done both qualitative and, and quantitative work. Uh, she emphasizes a little bit more on the qualitative. And she made the departure from academia into industry much sooner than I did. And she has had, at this point, I think three, three, three or four industry research jobs. I could be getting that wrong. Um, but she is very knowledgeable about the industry research space. And like I've, I've said before, I think she's really someone that many grad students, or particularly in the social sciences, can look to as someone who gathered the skills through grad school and then pivoted into academia and is now doing pretty darn well. Uh, she has a, a career that she loves and she makes more money than I think most professors do. So uh, anyway, let's get to the interview. Uh, thank you for listening and here we go. I need to pay off these student loans. I need to be like on a career trajectory. And then, I don't know, I think it was, you know, divine intervention or something, but I literally applied for like 40 things, was getting no, and I got no interviews, by the way, from all those jobs. And finally, I got one, I saw one for an ethnographic researcher on LinkedIn. And I was like, oh, I don't know what they're talking about in this description, but I can do ethnography. Welcome to the Grad School Sucks Podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with my good friend, Dr. Savannah Young. Savannah currently holds the role of Qualitative Marketing Analyst at California biotech company Illumina, and prior to that, she has held several research-related roles in industry settings. Now, Savannah is my friend, and I might be a little biased, but I believe that her career path is an excellent example of something that grad students should seek to emulate if they are skilled in qualitative research and want to continue to use their research skills outside of an academic setting. Savannah's industry career has allowed her to continue to refine her skills as a researcher, gain a fairly competitive wage, and have a good work-life balance, something that may interest a lot of grad students out there. I'm super excited about this episode. One minor note before we start, you may hear a slight buzz during sections of the episode when I'm talking. This is because the headphones I was using were complete garbage and the microphone had a little bit of feedback coming in. So I've since gotten better equipment, but I apologize for the poor audio during parts of this episode. If you end up enjoying today's episode, please like and subscribe, leave a comment and write a review. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to this podcast, consider sending them today's episode and let them know why they should check it out. And if you're listening to today's episode and not watching it, try the video version of the podcast on our YouTube channel. Anyway, I'm so excited to be able to share my conversation with Savannah with you today. Be sure to stick around to the very end of the episode to hear her responses to our bonus questions. And without further ado, let's get to the episode. 
Savannah, thank you for joining me on this call this morning. Uh, everyone, welcome to the Grad School Suck podcast. Today we are interviewing Savannah Young, Dr. Savannah Young. Savannah, would you give everyone just the elevator pitch of who you are professionally now, what you got your degree in, what you do for your job, that kind of a thing? Yeah, sure. So I'm Savannah Young. I got my degree in psychology from Valdosta State University, my undergraduate degree in 2012. And then right after that, I went to University of Georgia and um, pursued the doctorate in human development and family science. And that's where I met Matt. And I graduated in 2016. And then I immediately moved to California and took my first big girl job. Some people might say um, full-time salaried job. Um, in California, in the Bay Area, as a design researcher, ethnographic researcher is actually the title I had. Pretty amazing. And since then, I've kind of stayed in the corporate industry life. I, I was That was a consultant job, my first one. And I, then after that, we moved back to the southeast to be closer to family as we started having the babies. And um, I, I joined a, a, a company, a company. A corporation, I guess, an insurance company as a design researcher on their marketing team. And that sort of that role was starting to pick up around 2017, 2018. I started seeing titles um, for that pop up on LinkedIn. And anyway, was there for two or three years. And now I'm recently in this year joined Illumina, which is a genetics um, technology, biotech company, a pretty large global company that's based in San Diego, California, and I'm on their um, market research team. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Um, and we're going to dive into all of that. Uh, and I think you have such a unique story. But before I get ahead of myself, let's start from the beginning. What drew you to grad school initially? It's a pretty gloomy Story, not very exciting, but um, as a psychology major, um, well, I mean, in, in undergrad, it's just a, I just have reflected on it and I shouldn't have been in college yet. Everyone should just go and live life a little while. But here I was, I was in college. I was 18 or 19, 20 years old, trying to figure out what I wanted to do um, and started as a journalism major. Somebody told me that was going to be a horrible life. <laughs> So I was like, well, I'll just go do psychology, I guess, then, because I can do a lot of different things with that, I guess, right? Um, I, lo I loved it. I loved learning about the brain and how people think. Um, but everyone then told me, and I'm very impressionable, everyone then told me, well, you can't do anything with this. You have to go to graduate school now. So you're going to be a psychologist, right? And I was, Or a therapist. And I was like, ooh, I don't know if I can pull that off, um, but I'll go to graduate school. So it was sort of... Um, I wasn't ready to, I didn't feel like I was ready to really decide a career path. I didn't have the financial means to just start traveling. Um, and so I just went, <laughs> I applied to different graduate schools. I'm kind of, a, I was, I am, and I was a very ambitious person. I thought, I'm just going to go ahead and knock this out. Like I want to eventually get my doctorate, right? So I'm just going to knock it out. Um, you know, looking back, I think I would have told myself to do things a little differently, but um it did work out and I learned a lot in the process and graduate school was an, a, a wonderful experience for me. And I'm like, I wouldn't, I don't regret it. Um, 
but you kind of get after a psychology degree, you sort of get um told to do a lot of different things. And so I'm glad I had some good mentorship and good advice about the human development and family science program because it really had many different career options within it. And so that's why I wanted to pursue that. Very cool. And while you were, uh, you and I were, were in the same cohort, correct? We, we started the same year. I think you were one cohort behind me, I think. But were, were you getting your master's while getting your PhD? Yeah, it was um, something like that. Okay, that's what that's maybe that's what's mixing mixing up the waters for me. What did you do your research on during the your time in graduate school? Um, I got interested in doing research with refugee families. So there were some local or a local community of resettled refugees from most commonly. Um, Thailand and, Bur and Burma. And I've always been interested in people from other countries and other cultures. And um, I just really wanted to leverage that opportunity to, um, to get involved and, 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 and see how I could contribute, I guess, to their experience and learn from it. Um, it felt like a meaningful thing that I could, I could participate in. As a graduate student, also I wanted to um, collect my own data. I didn't want to use um, a data set that existed already, um, especially being a qualitative researcher. So, this was I started doing research with the, a community of resettled refugees on how they use food to um, integrate their family and continue to kind of maintain the ties to their culture and kind of just as a resiliency um, factor. And then that was sort of for my master's project. And then um, I also continued kind of the idea of like resettled people and people who have been forcibly moved in my doctoral data dissertation um, couple years. So I actually partnered with the global health team at UGA. So I was HDFS, human development, family science and global health. And we said, you know, there is something happening right now, the Syrian um, refugee crisis and the war in Syria. So I wanted to um, see if I could understand what was going on with that, with these people that were forcibly being moved. And so I actually collected data in the Middle East, in Israel, um, on those families who had been who had been um, forcibly moved to receive health care in Israel. So this idea of like, what happens when a family is forcibly moved? How do they deal with that? That was sort of like the, the common thread of all my research. I, I remember that. Um, I don't remember if I went to your defense or or some other time you were talking about it, but that was such an exciting project to get to hear about. Um, yeah, was there was there some conflict going on over there actively while you were there? Yeah, um, there was. It, it, it had kind of peppered down a little bit by the time I actually traveled to Israel, but they were still receiving people at the border from Syria. So between Syria and Israel, the border, and they were pulling them in and treating them in the hospitals. And so I actually conducted like a um, qualitative and quantitative mixed method study in hospital settings with these patients and with the doctors, mostly with the doctors who are treating the patients to understand what that was like and how all the different pieces to that puzzle 
because I just figured like this isn't a moment. Um, there's a lot of subtext between the Syrian people and the Israeli people in general, like historically from way back, obviously. Um, and this is a moment that's very kind of interesting, but also may, we may see repeat itself globally a lot um, because there's always people across borders that are having trouble um, with each other. And then you also, as a healthcare professional, are asked to treat them and to help them when you can. And so what's that like? And this may happen again. So I, I wanted to understand that and try to use that as the crux of the research question. How are they getting through this process of treating people that historically have been their enemies? Yeah, man, that's amazing. Um, so, so while you were doing your research and going through graduate school, did you have like a point at which you, what, what was your outlook on your career? Kind of like at yeah. the beginning of grad school and how did that morph over time? Yeah. So, okay. Um, this is where my naivete will show a little bit. Um, but I thought, you know, my strategy was, okay, I have this experience now with refugees, but I still don't know anything about anything. Like I'm still just like this. I can't go. I thought I can't go teach people. And I just had this gut feeling that, um, that's, I know that's kind of expected to go from, getting your doctorate to being a professor, but I was so young. I had just gone straight through school. Um, and I had some big experiences, you know, I could have teach, taught people probably. Um, but I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do at the moment. And so, um, I thought, well, I'm going to go then work for the United Nations and I'm going to become like a diplomat or a researcher. Well, they don't have researchers there. I mean, they might now, but at the time, like there were, they weren't paying people to do what I could do or what I thought I could do. I just, I was still so green. Like there's just, and this goes back to like this, what I hope we start to talk about is just this like lack of practical help in terms of like what it looks like to actually make money after you graduate. <laughs> um, there's, there's just no assistance with that. So you just have to kind of make it up as you go and that's all right. But so I, I, I get my doctorate and everything. And I'm, I'm looking around for jobs that would pay me money to do research with refugee families. And there's just not any, they're all volunteer work because it's a philanthropic, you know, charitable cause. Um, there's not a lot of people that will pay you um, to do that. So that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, but then my, my, who, what became my, who became my husband, we got married and he, he wanted to get his master's in data science. So we started kind of figuring out what we could do after, you know, this phase of um, graduate school for me. And he wanted to move to this program that was in San Francisco. So I started looking for jobs out there. Everything I was applying to was, I mean, I applied for like 40, at least 40 jobs. And they were all like, you know, with nonprofit agencies working with refugees, but nobody was doing research. It was like, help the refugees, like go take them to the doctor and everything. And I thought, well, dang, I just got this doctorate. Like, you know, I mean, I want to do that. Maybe I can do that also, but I, I need to pay off these student loans. I need to be like on a career trajectory. And then I don't know, I think it was, you know, divine intervention or something, but I, I literally applied for like 40 things was getting no, and I got no interviews by the way. <laughs> from all those jobs. And finally I got one, I saw one for an ethnographic researcher on LinkedIn. And I was like, Oh, I don't know what they're talking about in this description, but I can do ethnography. Um, I've learned how to do that. And so I 
we took a big risk. We moved out there with no jobs and we, um, I got the job, you know, and, and it was, I think that the people who give us our first job are a special breed. And if you ever get the opportunity, if I ever get the opportunity to give somebody their first job, like it's a very special thing. Um, because they set me up, you know, they set me up for success, I think. And they gave me, they took a risk on me, even though I had a lot of skills that I was bringing to the table, I was very green. I didn't know anything about a lot of things. So, um, I think that's just something I always reflect on is that those people who give us our first jobs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes so much sense to me. Um, and, and I, I just got my first post-academic job congratulations uh, thank you and i'm starting next week and literally wow. i feel i feel like a young kid again or something who's you know showing up to class for the first time um yeah go get some school supplies <laughs> i know right uh so so what was what was that first job like what what did you end up oh actually sorry let me back up why do you think you got that first job did you ever ask them about it like what was it yeah. about you that stood out yeah, so it was a very small consultancy in Redwood City, California, and um, it was at the time five men, and they were all older than me. I mean, much older than me. You know, probably like forty-five plus, um, advanced in their careers. <laughs> and so I'm like twenty-two. No, sorry, now I'm probably like twenty. Now I'm twenty-six or twenty-seven, um, and. I come and do this interview and I tell them like, this is all the research I've done. This is how like, and I sounded, I'm sure very academic and very idealistic about research and about quality and data and integrity and all of the things that we learn in graduate school, especially in qualitative um, to how to, you know, conduct an ethical interview and all these things. Critical theory. I remember bringing that up. So they, they entertained it and they, and they appreciated my energy um, and then they're all qualitative researchers too. And so it was a qualitative boutique firm. Like that's what they do. And they continue to do it to this day, um, for companies, but they were telling me, you know, this isn't you know, like, we understand academia. Some of us came from academia, but this isn't academia. Like, are you, ha are you willing to sort of learn how to apply it to like companies and corporate settings? How do you feel about doing research for a car company? You know, like that, is that interesting to you? And I was like, yeah, that sounds interesting. And I just was, you know, I'm all about it. Whatever I could do, I was ready to do it. And, um, but what, what they told me later got me the job, which is, this is ridiculous, but this goes to show you how sometimes it, how it goes sometimes. Um, they asked me what kind of TV shows I like. <laughs> and I told, and I remember talking to, to them about Orange is the New Black. I said, I'm watching Orange is the New Black, but it's really sort of maybe too much for me. I'm realizing like it's a little dark for me. And it was the why, the not just the TV show. They don't, that's fine. But they wanted to know why I felt the way I felt about it. And they wanted to dig into that with me. And so we explained that and I explained that. And one of the principals, founders of the company just ended up telling me one time, like that's what he, that's what put me over the edge for him is that I could critically think about and be very self-reflective about things. And, um, explain, explain myself, uh, tell a story. So you never really know, uh, what's, what they're looking for. <laughs> um, but you do have to be yourself. And I, I remember that's a takeaway. I think you, you just have to be yourself. And, uh, unfortunately we think that that's not what we need to do, but 
at the end of the day, it is. And you'll, if you just continue that thread, you'll get the right opportunity for yourself. Otherwise you might get something that's not a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so in this process of, of getting this first job outside of academia, I feel like there's a lot of like lessons to unpack and I feel like we're already kind of doing it. And I know you have uh, material that you've prepared from other talks on, on lessons for transitioning into um, industry. Where do you kind of feel like the next step is? Because we can, we can go more into your career and the steps since then, or we can go into um, things that you learned from this job. What are you feeling right now? I could talk a little bit about that transition, like transition from academia to corporate research and just the different types of things that I had to, and I'm continuing to build and learn. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. I mean, it's, it sounds like a lot of the qualitative stuff that you learned at UGA really came into play, but of course it's a, it's a completely different world. And I assume there's, you might've experienced some kind of culture shift or something like that. Does that sound Yeah. Right? So like, and the co the company where I worked first was called Point Forward, and essentially, like, I just spent a lot of time talking to them about trying to figure out what design research is, because <laughs> that was what they kept telling me we were doing. We're doing design research, and I had never heard that term before. Um, and I was like, "Where did this come from?" It's you know, in academia, we have books on where you know, paradigms of thinking and where philosophies of thinking come from. Like, where did this come from? I'm really like trying to understand it. And, you know, I had to, and they helped this one person at the company who was an academic previously, like he really helped me. He, he was fine to kind of dig into that with me, but I had to sort of realize that like what I learned in academia, you know, a lot of things in terms of doing high quality research and um, asking those hard questions and not being afraid to, um, you know, you know, chase after a rabbit in terms of their interview, like, like, okay, you pick up on a marker and you feel like you really want to go down that path because you think there's something there. What I did not really have skills to do was, and I think unfortunately in academia, we're just not really given the tools to do this, but we would come back from the field and we'd go off and do like three weeks of field work in different cities and collect data and do interviews. And I was really like comfortable with that. We'd come back from the, from the field work and um, have about a month to put together the report. And that report included, you know, deliverable that was essentially like the culmination of the data, the data collection, the analysis, and then they call it synthesis of the data. So all of this meant working with our clients. So like for the car company example, like working with the people from the car company, these car people, like this is what we heard. You were with us on some of these interviews. We think it means this. We think you know, you guys need to start thinking about your roadmap, your product roadmap and creating a truck that looks like this. Or whenever you do think about your next set of um, products or trucks, try to keep in mind that people really value this and this is why they value it. And so that was like a whole new skill for me, figuring out what, you know, not only like this is the beautiful data and the story, like here it is. They don't, that, that's fine, but like that's, they want that this much and they want, what do we do with it this much? Like, what, tell me what to do now. Um, and then, cause they're, when they were, when they report it to their higher ups and their executives and their um, product managers, they're going to say, okay, we learned from the research that we're going to pursue this, this product and 
If you want to know why, I'll send you the link to the document. Nobody cares why. Like that's for us to, they might care. And if you have to convince somebody like at the company, like they might want to dig into the research, but really the work is um, so much about telling that story as you're delivering, as you're creating the deliverable, like working with your clients and saying like, we think, you know, are you on board with this? This is what we would suggest based on what we've heard. Now, none of that, and I've done that kind of thing since I started at that job, but I didn't do any of that in academia, right? Like we just wrote what we heard. And then there's like a paragraph at the end, implications. And it's, and you include the word policymakers should dot, 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 right? That's it. So um, that was like a huge learning for me. And I think that, you know, I, I don't know how to start teaching that in, in academia, but I think it could be valuable for people who stay in academia, for people who go into corporate research, you know, whoever, but like, how can we think about the action from this? What are we going to do? What, and how do we make a recommendation? How does a researcher even have the, you know, balls to make a recommendation like that? Like, that's what we have to figure out. And because people want to believe you, you know, you have the PhD, you have the master's degree, you're the researcher. And as a consultant, you're selling that expertise to them. You know, the executives at Ford or whoever, or Coca-Cola or whoever hires you, they hire you because of your expertise in doing research. And so when you give them a recommendation from the research, they're going to, um, they want to believe you. So you have to be believable. <laughs> and all of that was stuff that I had to learn how to do. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And um, that that's so interesting that they, you know, the justification or, or whatever was this much, but then what do you actually do with it uh, was what they really wanted to know. And that that's the meat of what they wanted to know. That's so interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, did you have any uh, experiences that you can share from that first job? Maybe like working on a project yeah. or um, something like that, 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 you know, yep. you found interesting. Yeah. And I'll, you know, um, I'll share something. I had, that job was amazing. I had amazing people I worked with. Um, the, 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 and they were all men. Like I said, like I could have had a bad experience, but I actually had a really wonderful mentorship, friendship, collegial experience. They respected me, you know, as a, as a young woman. Um, it was, it was a good experience in that way. And I have to give them gratitude for that. But the clients on the other hand. So I was, we did have, we had a lot of different types of clients. We had, we worked with healthcare. We worked with um, car companies, worked with insurance, various types of research projects, but the car, the car guys, I call them the car guys. Cause that's how they like to refer to themselves. Um, you know, they're an interesting breed. And I was doing this one interview um, and it was a really hard interview. And we were in Texas, we were in Houston and I remember the woman, like I can picture her face and with these were in-home interviews. And oftentimes, like if I'm leading the interview, I have a colleague who's um, filming it and um, taking notes and doing all the logistical things. But I'm focusing on the interview itself. But also in the room, if, if they would like to, the client is invited to come. So we had these like two or three guys from the car, car company come to these interviews with us. And it's encouraged. We like that um, because it helps them hear what we're hearing, um, helps them own the research. But that interview was hard. Um, and, you know, I think 
I like to think 80 plus 90 plus percent of my interviews go really well. You know, I've gotten really good at this, but that one didn't go so well. That lady was, she was very hesitant. She was very uncomfortable with all these people in her house. And uh, it was really hard to get her to open up. Um, but I did my best. Well, after that interview, uh, the client, you know, they didn't, they didn't think they, they kind of had some words to say to my boss. Like, I don't, I'm not sure she's can, she can really pull this off. Like, let's let you do the rest of them. That hurt my feelings, but that's a, that's a, that was my first year. Um, I was, I was learning and you, you can't win them all. And so we, after that, I really grew a lot, I think in taking criticism and kind of understanding how to work with people who may not really respect you or may not see you in the same way they see other people. Um, that, that same client, uh, we, we had, they were a consistent client. We worked with them a lot and they were nice enough, but, um, they also would make comments like during workshops, like, can you get me a cup of coffee or Savannah, are you going to go get lunch for everybody? You know, things like this that sort of made me feel a little bit, um, like I try to think the best of people, but I do wonder about like how that, how much they respected me. Cause it's a room full of men and then me. Um, and I had already had that one experience with them. So there are things like that, that did happen, uh, but not very often. And every time something like that happened, I'm, I'm, I found, you know, a couple people at the office who I could debrief and walk through that experience with me and grow from it. And also realize that, uh, on the, on the consulting side, it's, it's, it's hard because you're, you're selling yourself, you're selling your expertise. And, um, and I had to learn that I had to learn to, I need to kind of <laughs> grow into some bigger shoes. You know, I need to be more convincing. I need to have a little bit of a more, uh, maybe I don't want to say more professional, but more, um, it's almost like I need to believe what I'm saying like way more than I do. I need to, I need to just own it so that they then believe me. And I think I had to grow, you know, that was a growth for me. I think graduate school is, can be so wonderful, but it introduces so much self-doubt. Um, you know, you're constantly presenting to people who are tearing you apart. You have two or three um, professors in your camp that are, you know, shouting your encouragement from the rooftops, but then everybody else at conferences, your, your peers, you know, you're applying for grants that you don't get, like, you're just introduced with self-doubt constantly, constantly. Like, am I really enough? Is this really enough? Did I do this right? God forbid you have to go in front of the IRB and, you know, put your case in front of them for research. Like I was still feeling a lot of like self-doubt. And when you're in that consultant or even like the role I'm in now at, at the corporate level, like you got to learn how to overcome that um, self-doubt and, and believe in your skills and abilities so that other people believe you. And I'm, I know I'm circling right back to that, but I think some of that, some of those stories that made me feel so vulnerable during those first couple of years are the result, are their direct result of like not fully believing that I was, I had what I needed to do this, you know? Was there a time when you started to believe that you had what it takes and you were the one in charge of what you're doing and yeah, you know, you were the expert and, People needed to listen to you. I mean, I think it's a constant thing that we ha that I have to. I don't know if it's just me or if grad. I can't blame it all on grad school. I think, but it's something that I know about myself. Um, I want to. I want to listen to others so much that I have a hard time like then 
um, being so assertive myself sometimes. I'm just like absorbing, absorbing, absorbing. But that's the important thing about doing, you know, research on the corporate level, like absorb and listen, but then you have to like tell everybody else in a way that's a succinct, succinct story. Um, and you have to believe it. And so I think I'm constantly still working on that. Um, I've gotten much better. Um, and I know that that's a, an expectation. And I also know that that's most helpful, right? Like I want to help my leaders. I want to help my stakeholders. And so I have to trust that I'm doing my very best job collecting data, listening to people, synthesizing data with them. And I, and so if I trust that and I like remember that I'm a, you know, I, I did learn all these skills in graduate school and I do apply them and I have high integrity, high integrity and high quality um, work. I have to just lean on that and come to a place where I believe that. And I do believe that now. Now it's, you know, using that basis of understanding you know, five or six years later and, and, and going from there and sharing what we learned. This is what we learned. And sometimes in qualitative research and quantitative research too, right? Like numbers don't tell you everything, but um, there's always limits. And so you have to say, this is what we heard. And this is the people we heard it from. Go forth and do what you will with that. Uh, we recommend this because this is what we heard. In a year, it might be different, but you have to own what you hear. And you can't just be um, in a place of self-doubt. That's like the worst, uh, the worst quality of a researcher, I think is self-doubt because then mm. other people don't, uh, know what they yeah. can believe. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, uh, when did you know when you were at this consulting firm, when did you know that you were ready for the next job? Well, like I said, my family was, uh, I was having my first baby. And so, um, my husband had also graduated from his program and California, that job was amazing, like a unicorn. It was, and I look back on it, there were all the obviously issues, but I was traveling a lot um, to do field work. And there are still many roles like that, like, especially for entry level qualitative researcher jobs um, where you travel a lot and you collect data in people's homes internationally. It's like an amazing opportunity, but uh, it wasn't going to be a good fit for being like a, a mom of a baby um, with a husband that was trying to get a job as well. Like it's just, it didn't seem to be a good fit at that time. So I knew I needed to think about how I was going to make this work. And so we made the decision to move back to Georgia and I actually had like this crisis and I said, I'm just going to work at um, a nonprofit and uh, live on campus. It was like a, a church camp that I grew up going to. It was really beautiful um, in on the coast. And uh, my husband like, Will, you can go work in Jacksonville and, and uh, we'll be fine. Like, we'll just live on this little, on this, on the river. It'll be beautiful. But, um, I did that for about eight months and then I realized I was not very happy. I, I really did want to do research. And so that was a, a moment I had, you know, I had, it, it was, I look back and it was a real blessing because I was able to be with like my, my kid a lot more than I, and, than I thought I could. Um, but I, I was very fortunate to find another job, um, that was, for an entry level sort of research position, it was in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I said, I knew I wasn't happy. Like this was really when like the self-reflection like started for me. Cause I, I really took a risk, like leaving California, leaving this career and kind of saying like, I'm just gonna, all, I'm gonna leave all that behind and we're gonna just live a simpler, smaller life. But I wasn't happy. Um, I wanted to do research. I was still feeling like I wanted to do hard, 
hard researchy things. And so um, Will was on board and he said, okay, you're not happy. Like, let's try this. And we moved to Nashville and I joined the insurance company, uh, the general insurance company. And I was there like first and only researcher doing kind of market customer research for them. And that was another amazing opportunity. So it was very different. It was like in a company, I wasn't a consultant anymore. I had to learn like the, one of the first critiques I got was like, <laughs> which you just have to take these critiques and they hurt, but they're so good for you. Like they hurt so bad, but they hurt so good. So my, my, but my boss's boss. So, you know, like I didn't, I wasn't used to that. I came from grad school. I was working at a consultant where everybody was kind of like the same. And then I, I also, I was all of a sudden have like layers of bosses and it was very new for me. And so like my second tier boss, like a VP, pretty high up guy, you know, met with me, gave me some, you know, tips, welcomed me. And he said, you know, you've been here about six months, but, and you're doing great. I want you to work on, and the things he asked me to work on, I thought were ridiculous. Like he told me, he wanted me to work on my email etiquette, how to like send a cohesive email with a request and an action item, like these things that you have to learn to, to thrive in a corporate environment. You know, he wanted me to become, learn how to manage a project. He wanted me to take a project management course. Like these are things that I thought, but I'm, you've hired me to do research, you know? And he's like, and you're really good at research. Like I could never do that. What you need to focus on to thrive in this environment and to excel your career in the, at the corporate level are these business related skills. So ding, ding, ding. Another thing I didn't learn in graduate school. Um, so that job was amazing. And I learned so much. It was it was incredible. I was doing mostly quantitative research. I was working with vendors and I was, they were, you know, making sure we understood this, the question we needed to answer. They were giving me decks and I was regurgitating them and formatting them and telling story to the marketing team. Like, this is what we heard from all of the people that we're trying to sell our product to. Like, and they were using that to make decisions. It was high energy, high pressure. I was reporting to like the CEO at some point, the CMO. It was it was amazing, like amazing opportunity, but it also kind of burned me out a little bit. And so that's why I made the transition to work on a bigger team um, at Illumina. I wanted, I was the only researcher at the general. It was, a, it was wonderful. I was like, I was held in, I think a very loving place with good mentorship and good criticism. I've always been very fortunate to have good mentors in my life. Um, but I knew that it wasn't sustainable for me. I was working at night. I was like harboring a lot of um, stress before big presentations. I just felt like a lot of pressure was on me and it was, it was too, it, it became too much after COVID and everything. It just kind of got a little much for me. So I started looking for um, a growth opportunity. I wanted to join a bigger team with other people, a bigger company, see what else I could do. Um, also wanted to get like away from insurance for a while. I, you know, I was starting to like, just crave a new topic. <laughs> um, and so, Hey, here's genetics. I know nothing about that. And so that thought that was going to be a fun, um, experience and they were looking for, and I was actually headhunted through LinkedIn. So never ignore that. I've gotten three Very of my job, cool. all three of my jobs through LinkedIn and a recruiter, um, reached out to me. He said, you know, my client's looking for a qualitative researcher. And I see that's in your profile. And I was like, Oh snap, you know, definitely I can, I'm a qualitative researcher. Tell me more. And he started telling me about it. And I was like, this is really great. I hope I can pull this off. And so I did. So um, I joined the team. And since then, I've been doing 
actually a little bit of qualitative and quantitative research, but you know, you join, they think they need one thing, they have budget to hire somebody, they hire you, and then hey, you want to stick around? Like we need this now. The business the business needs change and you you flex a little bit, but you know, there is a limit. And so you have to find people internally to um, work with. Like I'm a qualitative researcher. I can tell the story from mixed data. I can tell I can get, you know, I can get a report and I can understand it and I can put the story together. And weave in qualitative insights, but um, I don't do statistical testing. Like, just ask Dr. Oshri. It's her, very hard for me, um, and I don't do it anymore. So I had to find somebody on my team who does do that. Luckily, um, she wasn't being leveraged in that way, but I said, listen, this is a great opportunity for you and I to work together. I can tell the story and lead the project, and you can, you know, crunch the numbers and help me put together the data and also elevate your role, right? Because you aren't doing this right now, but it's a skill you have. Let's show them what you can do. So that's how that can also happen. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's wild, the corporate environment. You, and especially now at such a big company um, going through, everybody's going through a hard time right now. There's a lot of layoffs happening. I want to show my worth. I want to show my value. And every day I wake up and I'm, you know, very thankful for, for my job, but you have to kind of roll with the punches too. And um, that's different than like the academic tenure track thinking. Yeah. I, I, and I feel like one thing that I'm hearing kind of through, uh, through these three different job experiences you've had is in academia, we're very much like, this is my research area. This is my method. It's the only thing I do. I get very good at it. And maybe you branch off a little bit and evolve from there. But it sounds like in your corporate experiences, it was much more like, this is what we need. Can you do it? And you, you figure it out. And maybe you shift, you know, you were ethnographic and then you shifted into something else. You changed topics. Um, you, it seems like uh, there, more flexibility uh, maybe is demanded in in corporate or in industry than in academia. Would you say that's accurate or am I missing things? No, you're totally right. It's so hard because you want to identify, like I was taught in, in academia, like I heard everybody saying, I'm a qualitative ethno ethnographer. Or I'm, you know, everybody kind of like latches onto this identity at conferences and things. And you, that's how you introduce yourself. And I'm an expert in this field. And I thought, well, that's what I need to do. And I mean, you can still do that, right? Like, I'm, there's no cut and dry. But for me, what's been, I have to, re, I have to reflect every year, like, what skills do I have? What is important to people? And, and I kind of, you know, if I watch my LinkedIn, and I try to see, like, what story am I telling about myself on LinkedIn, even like those words that you use to explain who you are, some people embrace, like, I'm a qualitative researcher. At the time when I got this job at Illumina, guess what? It said qualitative researcher because I knew that's what I wanted to be doing next. But now it says like curiosity, strategy, and consumer research because, you know, that's sort of more aligned with what I'm doing. I am doing qualitative, but I'm doing other things. I'm thinking about strategy. Like what are, where do I want to be going next? And so um, you can always, you know, reinvent yourself. You just wake up and it's it's all about, you know, how you, how you want to be perceived and, and it's not it's not betraying yourself to like one year lean into this qualitative research person. And then the next year lean into the strategic thinker. It's not betraying anybody. You're not lying. Like we are very complicated and full of tons of different skills, but where do you want to lean in to tell your story 
And that's a strategic decision too, you know? Yeah, that's, I feel like I'm just, I'm soaking in things for the future for myself. So, uh, let's, so looking back on these, these three experiences you've had, you know, the first job, uh, is such a huge transition from academia, it sounds like. And then you had the other job at, uh, the general, and now you're at the Illumina working on genetics, yeah. stuff, which is crazy cool. So. I assume there's a lot, a lot you could share in terms of takeaways, things current students should think about. I think if I'm identifying the audience correctly, most folks are going to be in graduate school currently, and most are are a little undecided on what they want to do with their career moving forward. Um, so, what what advice, what takeaways, what things should people start thinking about now to prepare for the future? Okay, so I'm going to go back to something that I harbored on a little earlier in terms of, you know, uh, reflecting on all the things you can do really well. You know, you asked me a question a while back. You said, like, what's your superpower? And that's a good thing for people to think about. What skills do you have? Um, Reflect on those and be uh, think about yourself the way your mom or the way your biggest fan, your your major professor, if if they're encouraging, like think about yourself the way they think about you. And if you have a hard time, um, go ask for that feedback, you know, um, and and give them some prompts. Like, what do you think I do really well? Where can I improve? What are some of my strengths? Like really focus on those positive things that, that you, skills that you have that set you apart. For example, a few things that stuck out to me that I I felt like coming out of grad school, I was able to do. So um, I could, think critically. I could think a little different, differently than the society would ask us to think. I would like come at things from a different angle and, and try to criticize it. Thank you, Dr. Kogan. Right. Like he was always like, but what's the other story here? Um, also you have this like ability to go through the scientific method. You know, you can think about all the steps involved and where there might be a hole and where we can improve the quality of something. That's really important. Um, ethic ethics. I mean, that's a big hole in, corporate America and consulting because consulting, you know, you're trying to win projects, you're trying to get money. Um, so you're bringing a lens of ethics that is increasingly important and increasingly getting attention, um, at corporate environments. So you have that. Um, so those are some examples of, of things that you have. You also have like presentation skills. If you've been presenting at conferences, you have teaching skills, you have, um, charisma probably. So all these things, then, I've brought it up several times already, but just the things that you don't have, um, you can acknowledge that you don't have to, ref- you don't have to like labor on it, but where can you kind of find some experience? Maybe you can present your research to the Rotary Club or to business people um, and get some feedback. It's pro- I'm going to warn you, it's probably going to be like, well, so what did you do with this? And that's what they're going to want to know. Like tell your story in terms of like what you did with it. Um, and if you didn't do anything with it, like, what does that mean? Um, it's, it may not mean, it may, it may just be, you know, you can just acknowledge that like in academia, this is what, where it stops. But I want you to know that like one thing we could have done or one thing a policymaker might want to think about, but you can actually think forward enough to, to make some recommendations, but yeah, get in front of some business people with your, um, with your experience and learn how to even just send emails and read emails and, 
interpret executive speak. Like it's very different. Um, just get some experience. You don't have to be an expert or anything. And then, and, you know, pay attention to your LinkedIn. If you don't have a LinkedIn, you definitely want to, I mean, I, I can only speak from my own experience. There's a lot of people that don't use it, but I've gotten three really good jobs with it. I've networked with it. Um, I think it's a great tool, especially in the research world. And um, I can't recommend it enough. And then in terms of uh, like, I don't know if a lot of academics, I think, do tend to be quite organized because you, you have timelines, you have timelines, you have to meet data, you have to organize. But um, organization and project management and time time management, you know, setting a goal. OK, we have to work backwards from here. Um, is something to keep in mind for business uh, research roles. And then finally, um, the last thing is, you know, that self-doubt. So when you get your feedback from your mentors and whoever, like that might help, but just begin to reflect on that. Maybe it's not an issue for you, but uh, I think it's hard coming out of academia. Like you're just bombarded with um, crit crit critics. Um and that's so good, right? Because you they're really wanting to make you the make your make you the best. And they want you to think about think critically about your project and what you're saying. Um, but also just reflect on how um, like use that to your advantage to 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 make your ammunition or your you know your presentation or your data like the best it can be. And then when you take that into the I'm gonna go get a job now environment you need to believe how wonderful it was and how hard you worked and how you can do it. Um, because I guarantee you, like if you've been through an academic program, like you're going to be miles ahead of a lot of, you know, people who've gotten their MBA, which is another totally different skill set. Um, but in terms of thinking about ethical data collection and data quality, you, you have that skill um, and that a lot of people don't have. So. Yeah, that's awesome. There was so much there. And if I could go uh, back for a little bit, you mentioned LinkedIn and this was LinkedIn was something that I did absolutely nothing with in grad school. And, um, today it's, I thought, I think I read a statistic that 70 to 80% of jobs, at least in the U S today are found on LinkedIn and oh not on other sites. And it, uh, I got the job I have now through LinkedIn. Um, it it really is crazy how important LinkedIn is for folks. So if you're a listener out there right now and you're in grad school and you you are leaning towards having a career in industry, LinkedIn is definitely something to think about. Um, so so in terms of practical takeaways, if we could think for a second about the qualitative researchers out there listening. I've gotten the impression, so I'm, I'm more of a quantitative researcher. Um, I, I love crunching numbers. And so that's kind of my world. And I probably have blinders on because I'm, I, you know, I just kind of forget that there's other stuff out there. So qualitative, uh, I feel like there's an impression that there's not opportunities for qualitative researchers out in industry. And clearly from your story, that's absolutely not true. Um, what would you say to qualitative researchers right now who are in grad school? They're thinking about their opportunities out in the industry. What should they 
do right now to prepare for opportunities in the industry? What should they think about when the time comes to apply for jobs? Anything mm -hmm. like that? Okay, so yes, there are, just first, like there are lots of jobs for you in the industry. Qualitative research, if you look it up, it's all over the place, whether it be on the consulting side, a lot of it is market research, a lot of it is um, future thinking, design research, those kind of words, um, strategic thinking. Those aren't the only things you can do as a qualitative researcher, but they're certainly the word, the terms that I see coming up. Do, if you're there now, like focus on, just, I mean, this sounds cheesy, but like keep a journal on how you're thinking about your research, how it can, you know, always push yourself to, to understand the decisions you're making. You know, when you do, when you do qualitative research, you're making decisions about who to talk to, when to talk to them, why you're even thinking about um, this question and asking it to them and how, how you're interpreting it. Maybe you're working with people in a different language. Like there's lots of like very human complicated, messy stuff going on. And all of that is stuff that they want to hear about. I'm, I've interviewed with Facebook twice um, or Meta um, and for qualitative, for purely qualitative research roles. And I got all the way to the final round and they asked questions like, um, you know, they want to know, and all the big tech companies want to have these, want to ask these questions about like, all right, we want to um, understand, or this is the problem we have. What, how should we do research to solve it. Like people in, um, I got asked this question, like was it people in India, we've noticed uh, through quantitative data analytics, we've noticed that there's a decrease in people from 20 to 40 years old using Facebook in this part of India. How should we do research to figure this out? And I'm interviewing for, for a qualitative role. So they're, so I think they're expecting me to come up with a qualitative research plan, but you know, I didn't get the job, but I, that's the kind of, um, questions that you get. And so I think the more you can, if you're in, in it right now and you're having all those wonderful, juicy, critical thinking moments as a, as a student and you're thinking like, why should I do this? Not this. Why would I do it this way? Not this way. Like try to write that stuff down and really focus on those decisions. Because in my experience, um, getting these big tech roles, they want to know why you, why you talk to that sample, like why that, why that kind of person what are the ethics behind that? What are the um, complicated complications you might face uh, because of that sample population? How will you extrapolate those findings to a larger population? Can we extrapolate them? Like all these very um, messy questions, but that they want to see how you think. So the more you can reflect on how you think and be able to tell somebody and be confident in it, I think that's going to set you up for success. But I, I highly recommend, you know, to all those people from Meta and Facebook on design on um in linkedin are like extremely kind and open to connecting with you um so i actually spoke to several when i was in my interview process you know and and everybody's just extremely open a lot of them have moved jobs amazon meta netflix now they might be at a consulting company whatever but um you know they've had success in you know getting telling that story and getting that job so highly recommend you know you connect with them and and hear from them what what kind of experience they had so yeah you can't reflect enough as a qualitative researcher and be able to tell your tell that story because I think people are interested and there are jobs what else and then the other you know practical things you might want to do is create your LinkedIn profile I have a online portfolio that I created as well like a website some some jobs when you apply like they actually it's it's a required input is your portfolio website so then you have to have a portfolio website 
Um, but you know, you don't have to make all that until you're ready to kind of start grad, you know, that last semester after your dissertation is done, just focus on like high quality, really good research, um, interesting stories. Somebody told me that in graduate school, like if you want to get a good job, just have a lot of interesting stories to tell. And that's, that's not bad advice. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Do you, so for, for the folks who are in grad school, um, Maybe folks like me, who I had no idea there were jobs, you know, in data outside of academia. Don't know why I didn't know that. I was naive. You know, I also went straight through. I didn't take a break between undergrad and master's or master's and PhD, which looking back, you know, I would have advised again. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, so these qualitative research jobs in industry, can you share, like, what kind of a pay range are people looking at? Yeah. I mean, I can, I'm fine to share where I started and, um, you know, I don't think it was right. I think I should have pushed. So first thing, California, like it's crazy expensive out there. Our rent, we were in a duplex, a two bedroom. It was over three, $3,500 a month for rent, rent. Um, yeah. So more than the recommended 30% of my income was going to that. But, um, I was, I was given an offer, you know, my first job, I did not negotiate. The offer was like $75,000, did not negotiate, just said, thank you. <laughs> that was so stupid. Um, God, just kill myself for that because that actually set me up, you know, and I have to give myself a break. Like I had, I had just had 40, 40 applications not get accepted. And I had, a, I was having a crisis and we were moving to California and like, I was just so happy to have something. So of course I accepted it, but please, please negotiate. Um, at least a little bit because that then set me up for, you know, okay, well, my next job. And remember I took that break. So we moved from California back to Georgia. I took this break and that kind of made me think, Oh, like, Oh gosh, you know, I'll just be happy to get anything. And I only got the offer at 85, which wasn't good enough either. You know, um, I negotiated a little bit. I got a little bit of a, a bump. Like I think I got up to like 90 and then, and, but it wasn't for salary. It was like a little bonus. Like you can have a $5,000 bonus when you start. And I was like, okay, but you know, Hey, like, again, I'm trying to break back in. I've been on a break and that's not bad actually in the South. I'm, I'm going to be grateful for that and see what happens. Um, and I did negotiate. So I was proud of myself. <laughs> I tried. Um, and then I moved, you know, I was there a couple of years, a year and a half. And I started looking around and I was like talking to some other people, you know, it's, your network is important, right? Who are some other people not at your company in similar roles, ask them what they're making. Like if you're friends, like ask them if they can share. It's so helpful because that was how I figured out, oh, like I've, I've gotten a PhD. I've been in the industry for about four years. Uh, that's 10 years experience. Um, I should probably be like asking for more money because my friends are over here at like 140. Um, so I actually had to like put together a proposal and present it to my manager about like a pay adjustment, not just a, not a promotion. Just like, I was like, I don't think I've been here long enough or I'm not sure we're ready for to talk about a promotion, but I need to like negotiate my salary. Um, and she was very amenable to that and very happy to have that discussion with me. And she vouched for, for me and it did put me over. Um, it got me to like 110. So I'm being very transparent, but I just think we have to talk about that. Um, and so this was a, you know, Nashville, based company. I was an individual contributor making about uh, 110. That was a nice bonus twice or once a year. 
and I had great benefits. And now, um, now, you know, I, I took a new role, another individual individual contributor role based in California, but I'm still, they adjusted for living here in Georgia. And um, I have friends of mine who are applying and they're, it, it's crazy. Like it's all over the place. I've, there's a, there's a website called, I'll have to send you the link. It's called like open salary or something.com. And you can look at what all these people are making. It's anonymous. Um, so the role that the headhunter, you know, this qualitative researcher role, he, he, he was very open with me about the salary range. He said, they're looking to pay between, I think 130 and 140. And um, I said, well, that's going to be nice. Cause you know, the role sounds less stressful. It sounds like more money. And I also want to learn something new and have a new experience. And um, so I was, that's where sort of where I'm at like right now. And um, I have a friend who's an individual contributor for a startup and she went from 150 to 175. So it's all over the place. She's a quantitative researcher. I don't know if there's a difference there. I don't think there is. I don't think there has to be if there is. But I think somewhere between 100 and 200, it starts to slow down after 150 pretty significantly. But, but one, 100 to 150 I think you can expect that's a that you should feel really good about that in my own opinion. Um, you should feel really good about that, especially if you can kind of come out of grad school and achieve that. But it's not always going to be like that, um, and you have to start somewhere. But just negotiate, negotiate, and and if you're not happy, like apply for something else and keep looking. Yeah, that that's wisdom. And thank you so much for sharing the numbers. Um, I, I was I was talking with uh, Allie, and she uh, talked about her specific numbers, and then she talked about this movement called like financial transparency in the workplace. It was something I had never heard of, um, but and I always got the feeling that like talking about salaries in academia felt weird, and then talking about salaries out in industry while you're in academia was like extra extra weird because <laughs> um, it's like oh you're thinking about leaving the cult huh <laughs> uh but yeah thank you for sharing that I feel like that's so important for the people out there who just don't know or they don't have someone in, in their social network um or they just haven't been exposed to information like that before um so I I know we're we're getting close on time um I have two, I have a question and then something I wanted to throw out there. And then, of course, if there's anything else, um, I'd love to add in here at the end. It, the only question that's in my mind is I, I feel like there's probably people who are sitting in grad school right now. And, and I'm thinking about me back in the day, and I would have said or questioned something like this. And they're thinking about why they got into grad school. You know, they got into grad school because they had a passion for something or mm -hmm. there was a problem out in the world that they wanted to solve. And that their, like, idyllic mindset is probably going to go through some, some bumpy times when they see uh, a fairly thin uh, uh, academic job market. And, um, and then they look over to industry and there's more opportunities. Um, but the, that idyllic mindset about, like, I'm going to do my passion and I'm going to, like, save the world, they don't really see that reflected out in industry. What would you say to people who might be struggling with that kind of, like, a, 
I don't know, identity crisis might be an exaggerative yeah. word, but. I don't know what to say. Honestly, it's hard. Um, that's a hard place to be. I, I was there. I was working with refugees. I thought I was going to work for the United Nations and help refugee families. Um, I do very little with, with refugees now. Um, I have friendships that I made back in graduate school with, with that, with those families in, in Athens, but even those have kind of like diminished as my family has grown and as my, you know, life has gotten busy. Um, I think passions are like a gift and I think we have to, you know, use them and, and think about them and think of, and, and, and I don't, I think that self-reflection is, it can be so important because I think we can be very hard on ourselves. Like, Oh, I, I got into grad school, but just remember like to give yourself a little bit of a break, you're going to have, you're probably going to have student loans. You have to pay for those. Um, if you have a family, like you want to take care of your family, give yourself a break. There's other ways to contribute. Um, if you want to remain and, and find a way to carve that path um, with whatever you're passionate about, there's plenty of people doing that. I, I don't know what Allie's doing, but I feel like she's probably doing that with the mental health kind of stuff that she was passionate about. Um, there's plenty of ways to kind of remain passionate, whether it be through an, um, you know, now I can, I can give, give a lot more to, um, I, I contribute a lot of money to refugee organizations, for example, I don't give a lot of time anymore, but I give a lot of, of my personal money to it. Um, there's, there's ways to, uh, leverage your passion, but just, it's hard. It's hard. Uh, it's a hard moment to be in and I understand it. And if, you know, you can keep looking, you can try to, you can, you can, do whatever you think you need to do. You can join the Peace Corps and, you know, go do that. And I think that's fine. Like, there's no wrong way to do it. But also, like, give yourself a break if you feel like that's not for you right now either, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that not for you right now. Um, something I was thinking about as you were talking, and then you you even mentioned giving money to, to the causes you were passionate about. You you gain so much more leverage the further the further you go in your career. And, um, you know, whether it's money or like the ability to kind of guide an organization's thinking yeah. or the ability to get a job in a field you want. Um, and so that to be able to say like not now to those passions and, um, you know, the problems in the world you want to solve and to kind of like grind out the hard work to grow your career, to be able to be in a place where you can leverage it and say, OK, now is my time to mm -hmm focus on this passion or this problem. Um, that makes a lot of sense. But I will so, say, okay. it, go ahead. Yeah. Last thing you can, you, even though you're, you're doing the thing that I just described, which is like figuring out where you're, where you need to prioritize your life. And that's okay. Like maybe you can't, I can't work at this nonprofit. I'm making like, I, I can't even pay my student loans back, um, whatever it is, but you you can always have values. And I think we should always have values that we don't, sacrifice or we don't um allow ourselves to dip below you know um there's going to be companies that you might not believe uh are doing things that are um ethical uh you might you might have trouble like when I was interviewing for Facebook I had trouble with that I was like I don't know if I get this offer will I even be able to do this um and I had trouble um with that but you know I'm now I, I I'm for example like I'm working for a company Illumina, they're, they're paying me well. I'm doing really cool work. It's kind of slow. It's not like 
changing the world every day, but I'm working on some like really amazing projects that I think will influence healthcare, right? Like I feel it's a, it's a, it's a self, what's the word? Like a self, self prophecy bias or something like I'm doing it. I want it to be good. So I'm going to say it's good. There's obviously going to be problems with anything, but I actually, when I look back at like, I was in car insurance and there, I tried so hard to like figure out how I could help people who need car insurance. Now, you know, that I kind of ran out of juice there a little bit. And now I'm over here and there's a lot of problems with like cancer and everything. And there's a lot of opportunity and this industry, this company is really trying to create technology that can help people with cancer. So like there are opportunities to work, to make money, to do, you know, to, to, to have a family do these things and not sacrifice. Like you don't feel like you're selling out, you know, there's there, it can be done. And if you, and if you have to sell out for a little while, give yourself a break and like, pay off your loans and go chase your dream after that. But like, just people need to give themselves a break. Cause I think everybody in, in graduate school, just we're so idealistic and we don't want to never go below, you know, your values, but also just give yourself a break. <laughs> yeah. Give yourself a break. That That's such a great reminder. Um, so we're running near the end. So the yep. last, the last thing I wanted to say, and then I'll give you, you know, a chance to plug away at anything you want. And it was, I have viewed your career outside of academia from afar. I saw you get your first job whenever I was like a nobody on LinkedIn, hadn't filled out anything. Um, and then I saw you get the second one and then this third one. And you you really were kind of the prototype for me starting to think about that I could have a, a career in data outside of academia. And from there, I started to think about like, oh, like data analyst stuff. And then I started to dig into, oh, R, I need to learn R. I should have learned R years ago. Um, and yeah, and so, and whenever I started reaching out to people to kind of help uh, see if there were, you know, openings at places that, that people knew about or were connected with, you and Will were like the first people that I chatted with. And those, while none of the places he was connected to turned, it had like an opportunity that, that worked into anything, those conversations certainly uh, prepared me so much for the job I got now, which is which is pretty, you know, parallel, you know, healthcare data, yeah. that kind of thing. So anyway, I just want to say thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, that makes me so happy. Is there any final word of wisdom you want to leave people with today? No, I think I've said all my words <laughs> that I have, but I will send you this. Um, Okay, I do, I do have this final advice that I got, my favorite advice that I'm leaning into right now. It's from my mentor from a program that I joined, like a random mentorship program that kind of went nowhere. <clears throat> but she did give me this one piece of advice. She said, in corporate environment, consulting or whatever the industry you want to call it, the best advice I can give you is be bold, be brief, be done. And I was like, Oh, and that changed that. I swear I heard that like in February and I feel like now I use that for my filter for everything. I'm sending an email. Is it bold? Is it brief? Then I'm done with it. Be done. Tell them the thing, get over it, move on. That's great. I love that advice. (laughs) Well, Savannah, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Um, I feel like people are really going to take away a lot of nuggets from this. If folks want to get in contact with you, is there a way to get in contact with you? Or do you want to them to connect with you on some certain platform? Yeah, just connect on LinkedIn. That's the best place. 
Okay. Uh, Dr. Savannah Young on LinkedIn, uh, the current job would be Illumina, correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. Thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you, really Matt. Appreciate it. it was great talking to you. I'm sure we're going to have more conversations in the future about this. Yeah, hopefully. All right. All right. Talk to you later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Folks, thank you for listening to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe your life and career after grad school should rock. I loved getting to catch up with Savannah and hear about how her qualitative research career in industry keeps growing. I hope a lot of you gleaned wisdom and inspiration from her story today. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, I think her career path is something that a lot of grad students should look to as a template if they want to do qualitative research outside the walls of academia and get paid for it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe, leave a comment, and write a review. If you know of someone who could benefit from listening to this podcast, consider sending them today's episode and let them know why they should check it out. If you know of someone who you think should be interviewed on the show or generally want to get in contact with me, shoot an email over to matt at gradschoolsucks.com. That's M-A-T-T at gradschoolsucks.com to get in contact with me. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. Stay classy, grad students. All right, so... First question, Savannah, what is your superpower? <laughs> well, I've been doing a lot of self personal self-development lately in the last couple few years. And I've learned that, you know, your superpower can also be your kryptonite. But um, I tend to be extremely, um, I don't, I can, I, I'm empathetic, but in a way that I can kind of tell how people are feeling before they even express it verbally. Um, I, and I've figured that out and I can, I can sort of start to feel that myself. Um, but I've had to learn how to manage my own feelings when I get, when I'm around other people and I'm kind of experiencing their anxiety or their anger or whatever it may be. But I think it can be a superpower, especially in terms of um, work, you know, in the industry. So I'm trying to frame it that way. Absolutely.